0: Good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you once again. And here we find ourselves on Halloween and Reformation Day, digging into God's Word. And as it happens, it actually fits really well together that all these things collide tonight. Because what do we often talk about on Halloween? We talk about things that are spooky and scary. On Reformation Day, we remember how the Reformers took us back to God's Word and showed us the grace that we find in it. And tonight, as we continue our series, Is This Going Anywhere?, thinking about the plot of our lives and the the plot of God's word and where it's going, we're going to be thinking about things that, that spook us, things that scare us in life, and how God's grace speaks into it. And so as we approach that and we address these things, these things that genuinely haunt us, let's come before our God and ask for his comfort and his guidance that we would see his truth and be freed from those fears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you provide this anchor that we can hold on to in the uncertainties of life. Whatever things worry us, whatever things terrify us in this moment, Lord, would you help us to to lay them down at the cross and to come to your word and be reminded of who it is that you are and how you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen well it is halloween and so i thought what better way to start tonight than to turn to an abandoned house because what says halloween like an abandoned house and and this cabin here i've driven by this cabin plenty of times over the years this picture was actually taken over a decade ago it's over in calhoun county and and for as long as i can remember this cabin has looked abandoned now i don't know the story of this cabin it it, It may be that it is genuinely abandoned, that the person who owns the property doesn't care what happens to the cabin, one day it will collapse and be gone. It could be that the owner likes the abandoned cottage out in the woods look and and wants that on his or her property and so maintains it just enough to keep it in shape but kind of lets it go wild. Or it could be if you actually walked inside, I haven't been inside, but if you went inside, it would turn out that this is actually a well-kept house that the owner just made look abandoned. I I don't know. With our lives, we often don't know if they're abandoned either. We we start to suspect that they are. And it may be what we're we're facing at work and wondering. How is this coming together? It looks like my job is going to come to an end. I'm going to get laid off. I thought I had security and now I don't. It may be with our, our friends and our family and trying to figure out how to, to work through relationship issues there. And we think, I, I thought this was all together. I thought my friends were with me. I thought my family was was with me. And now I'm not sure what's happening. It could be a lot of things. But we all experience those things in our lives that that keep us up at night and haunt us. And we wonder, is God with me in this? Am I just that abandoned cabin that's going to collapse in the woods? Or is there something more underneath that's holding it together? We see that in our culture in general. And I think that that spooks us about our own personal struggles as we see the general cultural ones. We see a culture where more and more people say they don't believe in God. Maybe even on a day like today... With Halloween, we we think back to the lightheartedness uh, of trick-or-treating and so on, and and yet we we wonder, we see how big Halloween's become and how people, some people that don't even decorate their houses at Christmas time now go all out at Halloween, and we wonder, is society moving so far away from from believing in Jesus that now they don't even want to decorate for Christmas, and we found an alternative holiday? We look at a lot of things in our, our society, and we think, maybe we've been abandoned, Maybe we're that cabin that's going to cave in. I think that's where tonight's passages we'll be looking at. We're going to be primarily in the second book of Chronicles. I think that's where they help us because sometimes we look at our our lives or our culture and we think, well, God must be judging us. We've been abandoned by God because he's angry at us. Now, sometimes we're, we're just looking at things and... There's not really anything happening at all. We're just worrying and and we're reading into the situation things we shouldn't. Sometimes things are happening. Things are coming apart, but it's the natural consequences of sin. And sometimes it is genuinely God's judgment. Although we need to be careful there. There have been so many examples of preachers who have looked at some natural disaster or something and, and pointed to some sin or sins and said, this was caused by this sin, these people, and... How unfortunate that is, because only a prophet can say that, and even if those preachers fancy themselves prophets, they're not, and we should be very cautious about such things. But if we turn to God's word and we see a case where God does very directly bring judgment, and he says he's bringing judgment, a prophet, a genuine prophet says this we still find God's mercy in that, then how much more whatever we're facing, whether it is indeed God's judgment or its natural consequences of sin or, or just some messiness in life, we know God is with us in those things too. That's what we're going to see tonight. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Second Chronicles. We find ourselves at the very end of it, at the end of centuries of wickedness, and we find ourselves with King Zedekiah. And that's how this begins. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, turning against, excuse me, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Now we're talking something that's genuinely scary. You see, we had centuries and centuries. We, we looked last week at the promises to King David, and we've looked at how God brought the people out of Egypt before that. And we know throughout scripture, there are time and time again that we find in there that that the people were unfaithful, and yet God shows them mercy. And then in King David's covenant that he receives with the Lord, we see God promising a a kingdom forever for David. But here we find something that seems so incredibly different. Let's look at that very end one more time there. Look at those, those last words. We're at a point where there was no remedy. You say, Tim, I thought you were going to talk about mercy tonight. Well, let's just remember exactly how we get here. So we have King David and then King David's son Solomon. King David's grandson, Rehoboam, turns out to be a really bad king. And he doesn't know how to govern the people wisely. The kingdom splits in two. And you have the northern kingdom, Israel, that disobeys God horribly and is taken away by the Assyrians. And and they're actually forced to intermingle with the Assyrians and no longer really exist in a meaningful way. Now, the kingdom of Judah is a little bit better, and the kingdom of Judah stays following the line of David, following David's descendants as king. And in that kingdom, we see a people that sometimes follows the Lord at least partially, but often half-heartedly, but an awful lot of kings that look just like the northern kingdom, an awful lot of kings that deserve complete judgment. And so what we see here is God waits centuries and centuries watching the people do all these wicked things, telling them to repent, warning them of the consequences before finally there's a point where God says, you're not going to escape this. It's time for my judgment. And that's what we read. Let's go ahead and turn over to Second Kings, which parallels 2 Chronicles, and we get some core details of what happens as the judgment comes. It says in 1 Kings 25, 8 to 12, In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard and servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the, the, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vinedressers and plowmen. So we see dramatic judgment here. The kings, all the way down to Zedekiah here, who has a chance, even though he's now been made subservient to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, to at least try to be faithful to the Lord in his current station, we're told is completely opposed to turning to the Lord. So God brings his final judgment upon the land, and the people are carried off to Babylon. Just a few people left. The Babylonians understood that completely abandoning the land wasn't in their interest, so they they leave the, the poorest of people, the least desirable in their minds of people, to keep the land functional. And yet they're leaving the sorts of people that don't have any ability to rise up and oppose them or or really carry on much of the culture that had been there. Babylon wants complete control. And so here it is. We we had this promise we looked at last week. David is going to have a line that, that carries on forever. And now it seems like the nation has been wiped off the map. You might think, Again, where's the mercy in this? But we need to remember what God was promising even before this happened. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45. God speaks of one who will restore his people after this before it even happens. He says, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron I will give you the treasures of the darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it's I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. So, Years, centuries, in fact, before this final judgment takes place that leads to exile, God has promised that there will be a future ruler who's going to be brought up to help his servant. And so what we see here is not, in fact, what we might call a final judgment at all. God is not going to abandon his people and his promises. Instead, he's going to send them off into exile for a period of time to prepare them for something new. few weeks ago we had our first frost of the season and maybe you have some plants that you take out during the summer and bring back in maybe you don't and if you didn't if you left your plants out you've probably lost them now they're probably looking all shriveled and and sad and that's why if you want the plant to continue to live you bring it inside but When we bring the plants inside for the winter, they're usually not entirely happy. I've tried to to winter peppers and bring them in. I've tried some other things, and, and some of them make it, some of them don't. But even the ones that do don't look nearly as happy inside as they do when they go outside. So why do I bring them in? They're not happy inside. Well, I bring them in because what's outside is far worse. If I leave them outside, they're going to be all shriveled and dead and rotten, and they won't be back next year. They I bring those same plants inside, even though it's not as comfortable, and, and even though if plants consider such things, that the plant would be wondering if it was abandoned, that plant is going to be tended, it's going to be watered, and next summer it'll be outside growing again. That's, that's the plan. That's why one would overwinter plants. And In a sense, what we see here is God bringing his planting, his people in from the winter weather. Because the winter weather is their own sin. Their sin is corrupting them further and further and bringing them away from the Lord and and leading them to that ultimate rot, that ultimate destruction from the, the frost of judgment because they're going to turn so completely away from the Lord that they'll be lost forever, that they will be separated from God forever. But God brings them in from the cold, even if it doesn't feel very good at the moment. He takes them into exile so that they can be reformed, that they can experience a time of redirection that they might turn back to the Lord and be able to continue to follow that purpose that we've been following over the course of these weeks. And so in his judgment, it's not a judgment to cut them off. It's a judgment to bring them back. It's not saying it's good. It's not that we should desire God's judgment. And and yet we're reminded here that even our evil, even our worst evil that seems to completely ruin everything and bring it to an end, even our evil can't overpower God's mercy and his promises. And that's what we see as we move on immediately after the section we started with in 2 Chronicles. Because what we find there is we, we hear about this destruction and this exile, the things that we've been talking about, and then we read this. We skip a ways. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So we're we're recounting the story of the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment that happens. But then we get a sort of surprise here. We hear about this man named Cyrus and, and Cyrus is not the king of Babylon. He's the conqueror of Babylon. He's a Persian. And so what we see here is a succeeding rule of empires that happens quite a bit in the ancient world where one empire is conquered by another empire. And this new emperor, this new king, Is going to send the people back and actually commission them to build a temple to the Lord. Here's something I didn't mention earlier. We turned to Isaiah 45 and heard this promise of a future king, a future leader who would restore God's people. Here's the surprising thing. Take a look at Isaiah 45.1. It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings open doors before him that gates may not be closed. That's the lead-in to what I've read from Isaiah 45 earlier. You see, that promise isn't to one of the sons of David, to a descendant of David. It's not to some other Judahite. It's not even to some other Israelite. It's a promise to a pagan king of Persia that God calls his anointed, the same term that will be applied ultimately to the Messiah. The Messiah means, guess what? The anointed. So God says, this pagan king is going to go do my work. And then it starts to make sense, that refrain that that we saw earlier, that this one who was promised didn't know the Lord. We have no reason to think that Cyrus was ever a, a genuine believer. He was aware of the Lord. But many ancients were aware that there were different gods. They thought different gods existed. They just didn't worship them. They, they believed there were many gods. And so Cyrus could say everything he says there, and still not actually be a genuine believer. But what are we told? Whatever Cyrus thought, wherever he ultimately was, God was using Cyrus, and God was using Cyrus to stay faithful to the very promises of the people that he had chosen, the people that had time and again been unfaithful to him, and who had been carried off into exile, maybe feeling like they were completely forgotten. God didn't want them to feel forgotten. So even before that judgment came, as it was coming, he gave these promises like Isaiah 45. And we find repeat promises in the prophets, not just of judgment, but God's mercy after judgment. God's restoration after judgment. There wasn't the end of the story. In fact, if we looked at Jeremiah 25, we just read in in the end of Second Chronicles, the reference to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, we'd find that there was a promise that this exile would last 70 years. Now, there's a debate exactly when the 70 years started and ended. It may have started when, when King Zedekiah and, and his immediate family before him had be, been made subservient to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they were no longer independent kings. It could have been that. It could be when they're carried off into exile in 586 because... Seventy years later, the temple is rebuilt. It could be several different spots, but what we see is there's a 70-something year window in which there's a time where things aren't as they should be. And there's a lot of restoration to do after that period of time. But God gave the people, if they were paying attention, and at least some of the people in Babylon, as they reviewed what the Lord had told them in the, the decades and even centuries before, surely saw this, that God was still with them. Even in exile, even the fact that the exile happened was a reminder that God was with them because God promised judgment, God brought about judgment. That meant that he was actually powerful enough to do what he said. If he was powerful enough to bring about judgment, then he's powerful enough to bring about the mercy that comes after judgment. That's what we see here. And so we see in, in Jeremiah 25, I mentioned Jeremiah 31, you can check out, 23 and following, there's promises of restoration as well. We're not going to look at that tonight, but it's worth looking at. You see these promises over and over again. God wants these people who are acting wickedly that that God is going to oppose to know he's still going to be with them. And so it is if they were paying attention in 539 when Belshazzar was overthrown in Babylon. God was working. And certainly more I think we're aware when you get to 516 and the temple's being rebuilt under the direct permission of a pagan king. How amazing is that? God is working. Cyrus had a history of trying to cooperate with different local deities, and and that may have been what he was thinking about here. But he was doing something so much more. He was actually working with the God of the universe who had foretold of Cyrus by name before Cyrus was even born. How amazing is that? God takes pieces that seem to be falling apart, that seem to be abandoned, brings them together for something good. Last night at Little Hills, we had a little bit of a a time of reflection at the beginning of the message there, talking about one of the pieces of the altar that you often see when we're live streaming on Sunday nights. As you can see Chris here is is reading our call to worship from last night and and behind her is the wood paneling that goes along with the altarpiece and the thing that you may not know if you haven't been around Faith Tree in the years past before Little Hills launched is that that altarpiece which came from our friends at the local Lutheran church that used to work with us in ministry that that altar used to be on the other side of the room and it was just up against the wall and and in that particular spot it looked okay the area above it was a little bit bland, but it looked okay. But then we decided we should rearrange the room for a number of reasons. It made it a lot more functional, and the altar went to that portion of wall that was more open, and it looked really bland. It just looked way too open. But on the other side of the room, there was a giant piece of wood that had been made by some of the students for a homecoming parade that was a a giant Wittenberg door uh, remembering the the time on Reformation Day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. And inadvertently, he didn't know he was doing it at the time, but he started the Reformation. So it was this door that that really didn't have a home. No one really, I think, knew what to do with it. It was just taking up space. As we were moving things around, my mom suggested, well, what if you move that door behind the altar? What would it look like? And now if you have just come into Little Hills or Faith Tree uh, just in the last couple of years, and and you you see a picture of that altar, you probably look at it and think that's all one giant piece. It it, it isn't. It's a, a a Wittenberg door behind the altar, and yet it came together, and it brings something. It, 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 the two pieces together restore something. Two pieces that kind of felt abandoned on their own. A lot of times in our lives, it feels like things are abandoned on their own, and yet God is bringing them together for his ultimate glory. God is bringing them together so everything fits together. That's what God was doing with his people in this time of judgment as well. See, if we turn to Jeremiah 31, we we get perhaps the most direct hint that we could possibly get before the New Testament of everything that God was going to do. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That promise was given before the exile. And even after they returned from exile, their. There'd have to be a question. What in the world was God talking about? Might have felt like it was just sort of hopeless. There's this promise here, but I don't know what to do with it. It'd be like stumbling across an abandoned mine and, and, and you see it. Maybe you're, you even see that it's for sale and it's not very expensive and you buy it, but you don't, you go in there and it just looks like this dark place. Until the light comes, until it's lit up, and suddenly you see all this this beautiful gold inside that's ready to be mined, or all these beautiful diamonds, these things that are now all yours, you can look at them and say, all that's in this mine is mine, and how wonderful that is. But at first, it just looks like an abandoned spooky place. In this moment, our lives, our world, often looks like an abandoned spooky place. But God says... His promises are there. And as he he's told this promise to the people in Jeremiah 31, what was he saying to them? He's saying you're going to be you are going to be exiled. All this stuff that I've been telling you is going to come, it's going to happen. But then I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to actually write my law on your heart so that your your inability to be faithful that's happened time and again, that's not even going to be a problem anymore. Someday, my spirit's going to dwell in you, and you're just going to know me. You're going to turn from everything that you've trusted, everything that's failed you, and you're going to turn to me. You're going to know me and be able to say that I am your God and I'll be there for you. And that's what God calls them to and us to over and over again. Isaiah chapter 10, another promise before the exile. God says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. God says this destruction is going to come. This judgment is going to come. And it came for them. And someday ultimate judgment will come as well. And in the meantime, we may experience judgment at times in our life or again, the natural consequences of sin, but may we realize that God's promises are there. All we need to do is take the light of his word and allow the spirit to illuminate, so that we see as we walk in that dark mine of our lives that, that God's there with us. And if we turn to him, we trust in him and not ourselves. We trust in the light of what he has given us and not in our own supposed wisdom. We can see something so wonderful. So restoring. Has God forgotten us? God says that's impossible. We see in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-five to 37. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God says, if you can measure everything in the created universe, we know we can't do that, then ignore what I've said. If... If the, the very dwelling place of me can be somehow described and limited, then cast off what I said. And then Israel's in big, big trouble as they're exiled. You and I are in big, big trouble as we experience exile in our own lives. But what we're supposed to see as we we read that is, well, of course that's not going to happen because those things aren't going to happen. We'll never measure every part of creation as we actually know now, a, a physical impossibility. We'll never Measure the dwelling place of the Lord. So we know that the one who inhabits those immeasurable spaces is immeasurably with us. He's with you and he's with me. Whatever personal tragedies and struggles and fears you're facing right now, whatever judgment even you may be experiencing right now, turn to him. He remembers his promises. And those promises weren't just good for the people of Israel back then, they're good for his people today too. Everyone who calls in the name of Jesus. So may we do that tonight and every night. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we, we struggle to turn to you. We struggle to, to know how to make sense of, of your promises at times. It does feel like we're just walking through this abandoned mine without light, just sharp, jagged things cutting us as we bump against the walls. And you, and yet you give us the light of your word and the light that you illumine in our hearts through your spirit. And as you do, we see instead beautiful, beautiful promises all over the walls. Would you help us to see that in our own lives and, and not to turn to the things that ultimately fail us, but to turn to you in our lives that we might be restored and encouraged and directed towards you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And, and if it was, could I ask a favor of you? Would you please consider sharing this video? You, you hear me say that all the time, and you may think, why would I, why would I share this? It, what, what's it matter? It matters because there's all kinds of people struggling with these very things we've been talking about, and together, as we study God's word together, we can help them. And you may not know who it is, but you can help by sharing, and I hope that you will tonight. Also, please do join me next week as we pick up on this series. We'll be looking again at 7 p.m. at the next piece of this, because we saw this promise of the coming Messiah. We saw this promise of of God's spirit dwelling in our hearts, and yet we know it's not there yet at this time. The people don't know who Jesus is. He hasn't come into the world yet. Next week, we're going to be looking at that. Jesus as the bringer of the promise. So I hope you'll join me for that at 7 p.m. next Monday night as we continue this series. In the meantime, do join us on Sundays, either in person or online at 5.30 as we continue our series, Born of the Light. And something I'm very excited about that we're going to be doing in a few weeks, we have a blue Christmas service coming up. We're going to be announcing details on Sunday. And I hope that you will come and you'll encourage someone to come. It's a wonderful time to take whatever grief, whatever fears, whatever things we're struggling with, the things that haunt us and pain us, place them before the one whose promises are always faithful and use that as a time to refocus and prepare our own hearts for Christmas so that even when there's those things we feel like we're bumping into right now that make it hard to have any joy as we come to that season, maybe you're dreading that season this year. As we come before our God together, we can grieve and we can mourn and we can be redirected to his hope. So it's a wonderful place to come and to heal and to invite others as well. I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment in the comments below, or you can shoot me an email at tim at littlehills.church. It's always great to hear from you. I love getting to pray for you, and I love getting to just chat with you. So feel free to reach out. It's always a blessing. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I will see you again next week.